Alright, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. Oh, by the way, if you're new to Redeemer, we have a Connect card for you. Uh, we actually have a gift for you. Uh, a lovely uh, mug that was carved out of a sapphire. Uh, there is a replica of this in the Smithsonian Museum in this precious jewels. Uh, so, uh, thou shalt, but thou shalt stretch the truth, as Uriah too says. Um, so, encourage you to fill out Connect card, drop that in the offering plate as it comes around, and grab that uh, on the way out if you're new to Redeemer. That's our gift to you. All right, let's look at James 4, 1 through 10. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. Well, the house of Rodriguez was on vacation. Jeff Lee stepped in uh, my stead and preached last Sunday because we were at Yosemite National Park, uh, which is in California. I think we have a picture of Yosemite up here. This is the family uh, in front of the Yosemite Valley. You can see Half Dome uh, back there uh, behind us. And in case you don't know, Yosemite is a one of the foremost national parks in the country and the Yosemite Valley contains uh, Half Dome, uh, El Capitan is there as well. If you've seen that movie Free Solo, uh, you know something about El Capitan. These, these giant monoliths of rock. And it also has Yosemite Falls. And uh, Yosemite Falls is the tallest waterfall in North America, in continental North America. So it's a beautiful beautiful place and as we were thinking to ourselves what are we gonna do here you know what hikes are we gonna do and so forth we said to ourselves we have to hike Yosemite Falls and Yosemite Falls it's like looking you know this from the valley floor but somehow we said we've got to get up to Yosemite Falls so there's there's one trail up to Yosemite Falls I, I think we have a picture of Yosemite Falls here the boys with Yosemite uh, Falls there's one way to get there, and uh, it, it's this switchback trail through this little cleft in the mountain, and you just go back and forth, back and forth. It's about a three-hour and 15-minute hike if you make it. Uh, it is very hard, and it is very narrow, and there were many, many times that we wanted to turn back, but we didn't. 
And the result was uh, an unbelievable view at the top. I think we have a slide, a picture of looking out over the valley and the water dropping like 3,000 feet. Uh, it, was, it was magnificent uh, getting up there. Um, as I was uh, preparing this sermon, I thought a little bit about uh, the analogy between this hike and the path that we take on our journey of faith with Jesus Christ. There is a path to a full life with Jesus Christ. And at the top of it, at the end of it, and during the journey, we see unbelievable things. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. But the path that we take is hard. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, right? Not by the broad way. So what is this path we, uh, that we take on the journey of faith? I know it on Yosemite Falls, but the path that we take on the journey of faith to reach our destination in Jesus Christ is the path of surrender. It's the path of surrender of ourselves, and it's also the path of surrender of our friendship with this world. That's what this passage is all about, surrendering our friendship with this world. See, there are two paths that we can take in life, a path of a friendship with God or a path of a friendship with the world. One leads to Him and the other leads to nowhere. Because Christ has redeemed us from this empty way of life, we must choose to be friends of God rather than friends with the world. So that's, we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at three specific points. Number one, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? To examine our own lives to, and to see, are we friends with the world? Number two, what is God's response to us being friends with the world? How does it affect Him? And finally, number three, what does it mean to be a friend of God? So let's start to unpack these thoughts. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? Well, James starts to lay a picture of that out in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at work within you? Now keep in mind, James is speaking to Christians. He's saying, what's causing quarrels and fights among you, Christians? We have this concept of the early church as being perfect, that there was no conflict, there were no issues. But there were quarrels and fights and issues in the early church, just as there are quarrels and issues in the church today. And what is the cause of these quarrels and these fights? James says, is it not this, that your passions are at work within you? This word passion Hedone in the Greek is from where we get the word hedonism. In other words, it's our desire for pleasure. It's our desire for our will to be above God's will that creates these quarrels and fights. This, this hedonistic desire within us to have our will above all. And we see that there's a war going on in our souls. A conflict that's going on day by day, even moment by moment. Is it going to be my will or is it going to be the Lord's will? See, something must rule in our lives. And in this passage, we see that our selfish desires are winning the battle. It made me think of the parable of the sower where Jesus talked about the one 
who came along and he spread seed and some of it fell on good soil but some of it fell on uh, the thorns and Jesus said it's the man who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful this is a person who's living by their passions instead of the word of God and the result is dissatisfaction and dissension James goes on you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask what does it mean you desire and you do not have so you murder or are there literally Christians who are murdering people in the church well, I don't think that's what he's saying I think he's referring to what Jesus said remember if you have hatred for your brother in your heart it is as if you murdered them there's anger in their souls and that's flowing out into conflict and argument and frustration in the church all because you desire something and you do not have it you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and you quarrel you look at someone else and you see their life and all the possessions that they have the relationships that they have and you want it but you can't have it and so what do you do you fight and quarrel with your spouse with that person with people at the church you're angry because you don't have what you want you do not have because you do not ask in other words you don't go to God to ask for the things that you need because God isn't anywhere in the picture. Rather, you're living a life independent of God. But when you do ask, verse 3, and do not receive, it's because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, our focus is wrong. We're asking for the wrong things. James goes on by saying in verse 4, you adulterous people. What a statement you adulterous people he's speaking to nice Christians like you and me what does that mean well we must remember that the church is the bride of Christ right that when you became a Christian you in effect became married to Christ who is the husband of the church and so to chase after other gods to go somewhere else is in effect to commit a spiritual adultery that's why Jesus, when he came, uh, uh, called the generation that he was ministering to an evil and adulterous generation. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's like there's a scale that is right here. And one is a friendship with the world and one is a friendship with the God, with God. But neither of these can be up at the same time. When one goes up, the other goes down. Back and forth, back and forth. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, if you love what the world loves, if you love power, and a, you have to have a reputation, and you want all that the world provides, all the pleasures that the world can give you separate from God living contrary to God's will what you have is enmity toward God enmity the definition of enmity can be 
hostility, ill will, hatred. This is what is being communicated to God. Therefore, it says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The language could not be more stark, could it? I mean, enemy of God, that's strong language, isn't it? We have to ask the question, are these folks even believers? 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The answer is, I don't know. The Bible never tells us to doubt our salvation. But the Bible does call us to examine our salvation. Do we love the world so much that there's not a place for God in our hearts? Or do we love God? Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, you cannot pursue selfish ambition and be loyal to God simultaneously. When we were at Yosemite, we uh, stayed at a cabin that was about 30 miles away from the valley floor. And it was one of those curvy roads that you took to get uh, to the valley. Uh, you know, like the BMW commercial. I mean, it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you, I had to do, be, uh, do some of my sharpest driving, if you will, uh, in order to, you know, particularly when you're tired after a long hike or whatever, because there was no, uh, if you were to cross over that line, so to speak, and there would be another car coming around, it meant a certain collision. In other words, there was, there was no opportunity for straddling the line. It was one side or it was the other. That's what the scriptures are saying here. And so we have to ask the question, have we been straddling the line? On Sunday are we a certain way coming into the house of God to pray, to praise, to say, yes, I'm with you and I'm for you. I bow my knee in submission to you. But then the rest of the week, our life looks like that of the world. And our passions and our desires are not for the kingdom of God, but rather for the things of this world. See, my friends, the Bible is clear. We must choose. The decisions we make determine destinations. And the one thing we cannot do is claim to be a friend of the world and also a friend of God simultaneously. Because whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Well, this brings me to my second point. What's God's response to being a friend of the world? First of all, we have to ask the question, why does God care so much? Why can't I have both? I want both. James 4, 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously 
over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Have you ever thought that God yearns jealously over you? See, to God it's personal. He made you and I, Christian, for himself. What husband is not cut to the heart when he discovers his wife is having an affair with another man? It breaks God's heart when we go after the world because he knows that it hurts us. And he also knows that he made us for himself. My friends, God is a jealous God. And he will tolerate no friendship with the world. So what does God do? Does God cast us off? Is there a point when God says, no more? Leave them to their own devices. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm so thankful for verse 6, where it says, but he gives more grace. What does that mean? It means God wants us even when we don't want him. I so appreciate the quote by C.S. Lewis. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. God gives us more grace in spite of our sin. There was a beautiful hymn that we just sung. These were the lyrics. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. That's where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. The wonder of it is that God's grace is greater than our rebellion. God's love and faithfulness is greater than our adultery. And God does not force us back to himself. He woos us back to himself through showing us his great love and grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. Does not Romans 5, 8 tell us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, my friends, God is a greater choice than the world. His love is unconditional. His grace is exponential. You can't outrun the feet of God. And you can't out-hate the love of our Savior. That's why Romans 2, 4 tells us that it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. So what love do you want? What love will keep you warm? What love will provide for your heart what you really need? The love of the world 
which is by its definition conditional. Or the love of Jesus Christ who gives more grace even in the midst of our sin. You may say God doesn't really care about me. Christian, he died for you. His grace never fails. So receive the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Turn from following the world. It only wounds you and destroys you and leaves you empty. Jesus is the true husband, the true spouse that you are looking for. But you have to choose. Who will I follow? Because Christ has redeemed us from our empty way of life, choose to be a friend of God rather than a friend of the world. This brings me to my final point. How do we be a friend of God? God has given us a way out of the death trap of this world. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We were not made to be first in our life or to put the world as first in our life, but to put God there. And the way that we do that is by humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to God. As the Mandalorian said, this is the way. The Bible says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Did you know that you could resist the devil? The only power that the devil has over you, Christian, is the power of the lie. He is the one that dresses up this world and tries to convince you that it is what you are looking for. But you can say to him, no more. I refuse to follow your lies. Romans 6.13 tells us, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And what does it say? That if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See, we do not stand alone. But God does not force himself on anyone. If we come close to God, he comes close to us. So how do we draw near to God? We draw near in our actions. It says, cleanse your hearts, you sinners. In other words, stop living in sin. Begin to live a life of obeying God's commands, moment by moment. We draw near to God in our actions and also in our desires. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What are you holding on to in the world that you need to let go of? Is it the materialism of the world that seduces us? Is it sexual sin? Is it pornography that has a hold on your heart and keeps drawing you back? Is it worldliness? 
it's not time for us to be any more double-minded, but single-minded. Purify your hearts. In other words, give your heart to Jesus Christ. And repent in your heart. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. What he's saying is to grieve over our sins. There is a godly sorrow that brings repentance. When I simply come to God and say, I'm sorry. I've been chasing the wrong things. Will you forgive me? His answer is always yes. Because his grace is greater than our sins. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he saying here? Doesn't 1 Thessalonians 5.16 tell us to rejoice always? Yes, we are to rejoice in Christ. But we are to mourn over how callous our hearts have been to our Lord and Savior. For godly sorrow brings repentance. And he finishes with this promise in verse 10. That if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. That's how he started in verse 6, and that's how he finishes in verse 10, humbling yourself. In other words, make yourself small and God big, and he will lift you up. We all want to be exalted. Did you know that? We all do. But it's in God's eyes being exalted is what counts. And God stoops down to make me great. I don't know if you remember the 1980s TV series, Fame. It was a story about a a bunch of talented high school students at the New York City High School for the Performing Arts. And they all were there because they all wanted fame. They all wanted to be exalted. And there's this great scene in the beginning where the teacher speaks to the dancers and says, you all want fame. Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start pain, in sweat. See, we all want to be exalted. We're all looking for fame. But what we really want is the fame that comes from the one who made us, that said, I'm proud of you, that says, you're somebody. And when we humble ourselves, the Lord exalts us. The world, at best, can give you a temporary fame that doesn't last, that evaporates from day to day. It's only God that can give us the true exaltation that lasts. And how do we get it? Through sweat? Through our own efforts? No, it's through the sweat of another. Through Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, that I might receive his righteousness and his holiness, that I might receive his record and be looked upon by the God of the universe as one who lived a perfect life. So humble yourself. He must become greater. I must become less. Place your hope in him, not in the world. This desire that you have to be exalted, give it to him. And humble yourself, and he will lift you up. Because Christ has redeemed us from our empty way of life, choose to be a friend of God rather than the world.
That is when you will experience the beauty of what it means to be his child. Let's pray. God, it is so easy to be a friend of the world, to love the things that the, fr- that the world loves, to live in the patterns of the world, but you have called us to something greater than that. You've called us to follow you, to trust in your commands, to obey you, to seek to be your friend rather than the friend of the world. God, give us the courage. Help us to see the grace that you have showered upon us through Jesus Christ, that we would turn our backs on the world and that we would be wholly betrothed to you, our true spouse, the one who cares for us, the one who exalts us and makes us great. We pray all of these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.